0: This episode was sponsored in part by our patrons. Thanks to Matt B., who became a member this month. Learn more at patreon.com slash fruitbowlpodcast.
1: I feel like if you're gay and, and you don't have a poop story to some degree, like, you haven't lived. Masculine
0: Tops Power bottoms. Butch girls.
1: Femboys. Bears. Otters.
0: Unicorns. There is no shortage of labels that queer people use to describe different sexual identities and preferences. But how do we navigate that horny thorny path between realizing we're queer and deciding which boxes to check when filling out our dating profiles? Fruit Bowl explores the unique ways we develop our sexual identities by sharing the sometimes messy, always fascinating,
1: real-life sex histories of queer people. Our first introduction to sex. The embarrassing moments we'd like to forget. And the reliable bedroom moves that we've discovered along the way.
0: Basically, all the stuff we wish we'd known when we first came out. Interviews are edited for clarity and brevity, and are approved by each interviewee before being released. Thanks for listening. Let's begin. Welcome to Fruit Bowl, an oral history of queer sex. I'm your host and the creator of Fruit Bowl, Dave Quantic. This episode's interviewee, Joshua G., is a similar age to me, and while I was editing his interview this week, I found myself identifying a lot with his story. We came of age just as AIDS entered the national conversation. Introduced by talk show hosts and nightly news segments, AIDS became something to be feared by the general population and weaponized by conservative politicians against gay people and drug addicts. Everyone seemed to have an opinion about the meaning of AIDS instead of treating it like the medical emergency that it was. As a result, thousands of lives were lost. It was a lot like a slow-motion version of coronavirus. The same fear, panic, and rage, but spread out over decades. I remember hearing about AIDS in my sixth grade classroom, which is kind of shocking considering that I grew up in a small suburban Kansas town. That was 1985, and for the remainder of my adolescence and young adulthood, I never forgot about the constant threat of disease behind every moment of intimacy regardless of the level of risk. In his interview, Joshua mentions the terror of being tested, even when we knew we were, quote, safe. I can say firsthand, this was absolutely the way I felt each time I set foot in the clinic, knowing that this time the results would almost certainly come back positive. He also mentions one of the many surprises of being a middle-aged gay man right now, the curious amount of attention we often receive from younger gays. When we were in our mid-twenties, the generation before us had all but disappeared, either wiped out by AIDS, hunkered down in survival mode, or in monogamous long-term relationships, and likely traumatized by the many friends that they had lost. I remember how we coped in a time of such deep sadness and uncertainty, After I finally came out and adopted safer sex practices, I remember moments of joy and connection. I feel a deep pride knowing that our community met the challenge of AIDS head on as we advocated for ourselves and our friends and refused to be defined by a
1: disease. I'm Joshua and I'm 45. You know, I, I think I would describe my sexual identity as gay. You know, I think maybe part of me, like, because I just always like to be a little bit niche and alternative, and that's the the, 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 the fringe world I've grown up in. Maybe um, as gay people have become more and more um, accepted, you know, maybe I'm less attracted to that identity. I, I was talking to a friend recently and I was like, I was gay back when it was cool, you know? It's just not cool anymore, you know, like, you, you know, anybody can be gay, square people can be gay. But I'd be really lying and stretching the truth if I tried to describe myself as something other than, you know, a gay male. As more of an identity of who I am, really truly and culturally, I would describe myself as queer. Um, and I think that word, obviously it means different things to different people, but for me, Queer is an identity I'm more comfortable with. You know, I mean, sex-wise, yes, I'm a man who's attracted to men, so I'm gay. But culturally, spiritually, community-wise, I'm queer. And I think a lot of, at least queer people who identify as queer know what that means. (laughs) So I grew up in a town called Annapolis, Maryland. Uh, It's the state capital. Annapolis is located pretty much between Baltimore and Washington, D.C. It's best known for being home to the Naval Academy. And it's a really historic, colonial town. And I went to a a, a Catholic school right in downtown Annapolis, uh, one of the oldest schools in the area called St. Mary's. It's very preppy. Annapolis is the sailboating capital of the world, uh, supposedly, whatever that means. And um, to me, it means that people have money and they sail and, you know, they wear, um, you know, IZODs and uh, drive Mercedes. And, and, you know, I uh, did not feel like I fit in to Annapolis, nor did I aspire to be sort of what would be considered successful in Annapolis. Um, But being close enough to Washington, D.C. and Baltimore and having relatives in both cities, I grew up uh, going into the cities and and really knew that there was some other weird life out there waiting for me. Um, And I also spent my summers in Ocean City, Maryland, uh, all through basically my whole life, all the way up till I think my last summer there was when I was 22. And I loved Ocean City. It's a really trashy... East Coast seaside resort town. I lived, you know, right on the boardwalk. And, you know, it was um, where I had summer jobs and lots of fun and met, um, you know, queer friends. And, you know, it was a special place. So um, it was sort of my escape from Annapolis. I'm the oldest of three children. Uh, My parents uh, were together all through my childhood. They actually were together for 43 years before they got divorced. Uh, so my parents got divorced relatively recently, um, which was strange. As much as they were hippies and evolved, and my mother was certainly a feminist and we were raised in a, in a progressive way, they were also very traditional. My mother was a, um, was a stay-at-home mom. Um, she basically quit her career, you know, she was working on Capitol Hill. Uh, for a senator, and she ended up staying at home and raising the kids. And my dad was a CPA, and we lived in a suburban neighborhood, you know, with a two-car garage and a pool in the backyard. And my sister is two years younger than me, and my brother is four years younger than me. So we're all two years apart, and and I'm not the only gay in the family. (laughs) So my sister was the weirdo straight one, but my brother and I were both... um, Queer which at the time I didn't probably figure it out And I don't think people figured it out about him as quickly as they did me. (laughs) I Think they just knew kind of pretty much From the moment they met me. I was that kind of queer kid growing up from the time. I was a little kid. I uh, was more interested in playing with girls and uh, Performing theater if you were going to look at sort of the gender of the stuff I was interested in, especially in the 80s as a child. Um, I would be considered a little boy who you know, liked girly things, you know, um, and I did not fit the norm. So in a lot of ways, I think adults saw me as a gay kid. Luckily, I had parents who I'm sure struggled to some degree, but they didn't really let me know it too much. You know, I can, I can think of one or two instances where maybe I felt shamed a little bit. So I was really fortunate in a way. And they did put me in children's theater when I was a really young kid. I mean, I was very outspoken about what I wanted to do and and the stuff I wanted to do. And by the time I was 10, 11, 12, I was writing plays and making movies. They got me a camera. I was making movies, uh, you know, with the community friends. By the time I was 13 and 14, I was pu- producing large scale sort of haunted attractions and You know, my mom would would, would dress up in the costumes I would prescribe and sell tickets. And my dad would take the chain off the chainsaw and wear the costume I made. And and he would, um, you know, be the chainsaw guy finale. And at the time, as a little creative dictator, uh, you know, who was auditioning the neighborhood kids and writing elaborate scripts and building sets and all of that, um, I thought that was just what normal parents did, you know. It wasn't until way later, as an adult, that I was like... God, I really need to thank them because, you know, by that point, I had met friends who had come out of the closet and some of whom had been, you know, kicked out of their homes. And one friend in particular was sent to conversion therapy. So I'm really, really grateful for my parents. I mean, were they perfect? No, you know, but in in large part, they were kind of amazing, you know, because they did let me be the weirdo that I was. And I was weird. I mean, I'm not even going into, I mean, in Ocean City, in summer times, I would, for fun, put on horror masks or dress in complete gore makeup and like come down to the beach and like roll around in the ocean like I was dying or had been eaten by a shark or, you know, my dad would sit on the balcony of our condo and watch me as I scared people, you know. Um, So they were, you know, they like allowed me to be weird. first learned about the concept of sex in elementary school it was probably like second or third grade and it was fully explained to me by my mother when i came home with a question about it you know i think my, i think i didn't understand it i think i had heard something at recess yeah so i think that she remembers it like i was fully disgusted you know by it now i don't, have, I don't know if that has anything to do with me being a little gay kid, a little queer kid? I don't think so. I think it was just, I was a kid, you know, who was being told that, you know, my father's penis was put inside of my mother's vagina. That was repugnant to me. And I didn't want to know that. And so, yeah, I mean, she she basically described it in a very kind of like medical way. And I, you know, I don't think I really understood it. I have to say my mother was very progressive. I mean, we were raised from a very young age to to kind of like be told about sex um, and, you know, very specifically to be told, you will hang out with black children. You will play with, you know, Asian children. You will, if I ever find out that you are discriminating or, you know, and I think that's the way she was raised. Her mother's very much like that. But in our community, that was unusual. You know, people were very shut down around sex. Um, You know, there was a lot of white privilege and racism going on, but my mom, I don't know, she just was progressive. So uh, again, I look back on it now and I go, oh, that's really cool that we were raised that way. Um, And you can, I think, see it in sort of our adult lives. My brother and sister and I all, you know, the work, the kind of work that we do is, is very much a reflection of the way our mother raised us. Kids are taught, you know, to be bigots and all of that. And we were really lucky, like, we were taught not to be. As far as actually having sexual feelings, you know, I do know that as far back as like the first Superman movie, I can remember being attracted to Superman. So, I mean, I didn't know that at the time, but I can now look back on my memory and go, oh, yeah, like I was horny for Superman. I, I would have dreams where I was like flying, laying on his back, you know, like laying on him and probably holding onto his shoulders or, or my, my arms around his neck, that kind of thing. Like like Lois Lane. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It was very much like Lois Lane. to be Lois. Yeah. I don't think I can remember one serious crush, like where there were real feelings attached, until I was in high school. And uh, it was a straight boy who I really, really liked. And, um, you know, and he was nice to me. And he and I were really close, and we were really good friends. And I think I was in denial about the fact that I really actually had a crush on him because it wasn't cool you know to be a closeted gay person lusting after your close friend you know who's who's showing you kindness and affection but i definitely yeah i mean i had a really big crush on him because when we were basically separated because of college, graduating, and all that. I was really heartbroken, devastated, but we didn't have, we had a really close friendship, but we, weren't, we didn't have a romantic relationship. So it was a, you know, it was an unrequited crush. I was attracted to things that were culturally queer without knowing it. You know, I was obsessed with Madonna, like from day one, you know, like from the moment she Hit the scene, like, was unapologetically obsessed with her, even to the point where, like, as a closeted junior high school student or high school student, when you would normally go, mm, This means you're gay when you're like a dude who's this into Madonna. I never felt any shame around that. Loved Boy George, loved the Pet Shop Boys, Depeche Mode, Erasure. I mean, and I was closeted, like, not a little bit closeted, but like, thought that, you know, it was okay that I teased my hair and, Wore all black and you know listened to the Cure, even though it meant everyone called me fag. Um, so there was that part of my kind of upbringing that just I just never really questioned it. I just liked the stuff that I liked. It wasn't until I was in college that I started to intentionally ask older gay men like to teach me about um, culturally significant things that I needed to understand. Um, but part of you know being so deprived as a gay kid from any sort of um, images in film and television and things, was that you looked for any sort of identity anywhere. So at the time, you know, AIDS was ravaging the gay community. And that was, those were the images that were on the news and in the media. And typically at the time, being gay equaled um, having AIDS and dying. If you were a person my age, if you were an You know, um, elementary school or junior high, this is what you saw. So in a lot of ways, I think that really dramatic and horrible imagery was really stifling a lot of my sexual feelings because having feelings of same-sex attraction was... Really horrific, you know, not just because of the Catholic shit that I've been told. So there's like the the religious part of it that's that's terrifying, right? Like you're going to hell, which is horrible, and then there's the real the, the real news cycle of of horror happening where gay men are, you know, dying the worst deaths imaginable. You know, I think back on it now, and it's like most of what I was seeking out sexually uh, was centered around women and heterosexual sex, you know, there was a point where I, my brain just wouldn't allow me to imagine having sex with a man because of how fucked up I was, you know, was I attracted to men? Of course, but I was terrified of that. So I would seek out things like, you know, dirty movies on on cable television and v- VHS tapes with titty shots and stuff like that. and. You know, it's just interesting because, you know, sexually, I mean, at that time, I think when you're so such a little pervert, you know, you'll just take it where you can get it. So I do look back on those years and go like, God, I was kind of straight, you know, for a while, you know, but I wasn't. I think, yeah, I think there was this sort of ability to compartmentalize that part of myself and just shut it down. You know, now when I think back on it, like. Sex is robotic in a lot of ways, and it's just this sort of thing like eating or anything. And it's like, if you watch people having sex, especially when you're a pubescent child, um, you're going to be aroused, you know? There was sort of the progression of like, I'm going to look at naked ladies' tits. And then I discovered that Hustler magazine featured men with erections. So then it just kind of became like, now I'm just looking at the dudes It wasn't until later that I, I sort of started to let my guard down and, you know, or maybe just got older and at some point I probably did acknowledge to myself, okay, girl, you're looking at the dick, you know, you're not even paying attention to the woman anymore. Well, I remember that kind of starting to happen in sixth, seventh grade. So pretty young. I mean... You know, I I think I was repressing my queerness for a very short amount of time, but I, of course, did not tell anyone. I was still very deeply closeted Um, and, you know, did things like raided my friend Sam's father's porn collection. And like, oh, my God, it was almost like his father had an entire video store in the attic hundreds of movies. He bought the stock from a business and he did this with other companies as well. Like at one point he bought a wax museum. His father was sketchy and uh, I mean, he ended up going to prison for um, a long time for, uh, you know, mail order fraud. So we as kids, me and two male junior high friends, we had access to like so much porn and pretty much unchecked. So we did watch it together. Even back then, as a young kid, I appreciated Kitsch and Camp. Uh, I remember there was one that showed on um, cable that we taped that was a sort of, Sexy, porny version of Cinderella. I need to find this movie because I swear people don't believe me that it exists. But I watched it over and over again, and it was less about it being erotic and more about it being amazing. The fairy godmother was played by a black drag queen. When she gave Cinderella her makeover, took her wand and, and hit her crotch and said, "I give you a snapping pussy," and her, you know, vagina made you know amazing noises, and so of course she fucked the prince at the ball and it was like the best lay he ever had. So the premise was that he had to go around the kingdom, you know, fucking all these girls until he found the girl with the snapping pussy. But what's amazing about that is there was a scene in it, which I've recreated in multiple projects of mine, where she uses a corn uh, on the cob to masturbate and her pussy is so powerful that it turns the kernels into popcorn that are like shooting out of a crotch. (laughs) Now I hope someone finds this movie, tells me what it's called, and sends me a copy. Because I need to see it again. I've not seen it for many, many years. I actually think it made me probably more uncomfortable than it did them. And I wasn't necessarily sexually attracted to them by virtue of the fact that I I think, you know, I knew that, that they were aroused, you know, there was part of me that was excited because they were excited. And I think it made me feel kind of like a liar in some ways. So I would often take tapes and things and watch them alone, you know, because of course I had much more freedom to watch them the way I wanted to. But what's really exciting was that we discovered that not all of the porn was straight. or You could tell from the titles what was going on. And they had like the big glossy box covers, you know, so it was Pretty amazing. And you know, I have to say I had friends who didn't really say homophobic shit somehow. Um, they just kind of ignored that that was part of the pile. I mean, I was really afraid to like even take a gay porn tape out of that attic or closet cause I had to do it when my friends weren't around. Like literally, this is so horrible to admit, broke into this house, like knew the code to the alarm knew that they would leave the door unlocked, which door would be unlocked, broke into the house, went to that attic, dug around and found the gay tapes. I mean, I was, and what's sad about that now is I think about how much deep shame I felt. Both, I I I was compelled to do it. And it was almost like I couldn't stop myself. Like no one was there to tell me like, this isn't shameful. Like you should be proud of this and this is okay. So it was kind of, yeah, I think in many ways I'm sort of blocking or have blocked a lot of that from my memory. Because now just being asked the question, I'm just remembering that I actually broke into their house (laughs) and like borrowed, not borrowed, stole these tapes. You know, one that I really, really liked was a prison scene. You know, it was just like your cliched gay prison porn. There was the part of it, though, where I did constantly think about the fact that only someone who was also interested in these tapes would know they were missing. And there was, I think, part of me that kind of maybe hoped that one of my friends was also interested in the same tapes, you know, but that, that never came to light. Growing up, um, a kid in the 80s, Uh, In early 90s, uh, coming of age sexually at that time, I think there was so much fear and paranoia over um, AIDS um, that, you know, I avoided having sex for like as long as I could. I was in college when I did have sex. um, So I did phone sex lines. I mean, that was a thing back then. You would call and get off with someone on the phone and it was expensive, you know, but I had a college credit card. It's so sad that like a lot of my college credit card debt was like phone sex lines. Um, But it was also a way to get off with another guy and not have the sort of total terror and fear, you know, um, associated with uh, HIV. And so my first time was drunken and it was with someone I really, really liked. We were dating and basically barely performed oral and jerked each other off. You know, I look back on it now and it was amazing in many ways because it was like sex with another person where we were touching. But I also think it was so sad that there was so much fear still around it, you know? And I also wonder if we weren't drunk, if it even would have happened. Yeah, it was a weird time to be sexually active. And I think for as many people, in the generation ahead of me who were, I mean, surviving the worst epidemic. The younger generation behind that generation, uh, we were very shut down. And, you know, for me, a lot of sex was basically masturbation with another person for, you know, a long time. And God, I mean, anal was not for years after I'd started having sex. I didn't convert. And as we were learning more and more, And we understood how um, HIV was spread there. I mean, we were all having safe sex. I mean, I didn't know anyone of my peer group that wasn't using condoms, dental dams. I mean, dental dams, we were using condoms for oral, you know, like it was safe, safe, safe. Um, But in many ways, I think that whole thing made sex almost more trouble than it was worth, if it, make, it makes sense. Cause there wasn't just the, the actual act of having it and being careful and, you know, and, and learning how to enjoy it. Then there was the total paranoia, whether you had safe sex or not of having to go and get tested. And I don't care who you were. If you were our age and you went and got tested, even if you hadn't had sex, you felt that in your core, as a gay person. You were just going to self zero convert. I don't think people understand that, but other gay men my age really understand. Like, do you remember? Even when you had nothing to fear, you'd go and get tested and you were convinced you were gonna get that result. It was a really different time. That was college, so I think, I was probably 19 or 20 when I first, like really hooked up with another guy. It's weird, I was deeply closeted, but yet I was like living, I mean like basically the gayest person, you know? <laughs> like, you know? I think I was only closeted to me, you know? Because I I lived, I was so gay when I look back on it, but I think everyone knew I was gay. I just didn't think they knew. I think after my first sort of young, youthful relationship, I was maybe hurt. Not even because of something he did or I did or whatever, it just didn't work or whatever. There were a couple things at play. One, my drinking was starting to spiral out of control. Two, I became obsessed with filmmaking and creative pursuits. And while I was in college, I started doing drag. I mean, in the mid nineties in central Pennsylvania. I started to really develop very, very close, intimate uh, friendships with gay men that were not sexual. Um, Extremely close, like sisters. So I would have sex with strangers and I had intimate, close um, relationship with a few gay men. In many ways, I had one friend who was essentially a boyfriend but we were not sexually attracted to each other but we were like living, our lifestyle was like a couple. And we moved to San Francisco together, you know, from college. And, you know, there was a lot of love there and a lot of um, intense, you know, from, from my side at least, uh, trust and intimacy and just closeness. So, you know, when I got to San Francisco, I was like a kid in a candy store, you know, sexually and drinking a lot. You know, my drinking had kind of progressed. Uh, and I started performing in a, in, a, in a punk rock drag cabaret called Tranny Shack that was, like, taking off. And I was one of the, the original performers. So I think my obsessions sort of started to sort of split these things. Yeah, like, I had sex with strangers and intimate friendships. Yeah. And that was very satisfying for a time. Uh, I didn't really question it, you know. I just, I was okay with it. Like, I didn't really, you know, think about it. And... I did have other friends who were in the same boat. So it was like I had peers who were kind of living the same way. And it wasn't for a long time, not until many years later, that I was in a relationship where there was, I think, sex and love. Like, my later 20s. So I got sober when I was like 27 or 28 because I was an alcoholic. So, you know, I am an alcoholic. So I think um, my drinking had spiraled to the point where, you know, here I was, I was Peaches Christ, I was performing, I had a successful midnight movie show. I was popular as far as having friends and relationships, yet somehow uh, miserable, you know, behind the scenes. And and big part of that misery was just the sort of, Band aid of drinking. You know, drinking had been fun. It had been social. It had been a really, you know, um, special, fun part of my life. That for for years turned into sort of this sort of malaise of of maintenance and loneliness. So during that period, I mean, I was not going to be able to show up for a relationship at all, and no one would have wanted to have been with me. Um, so when I did hit rock bottom and, and get sober, I really worked on myself in uh, a number of ways uh, for a year or no, maybe it was two years before I started to sort of actually start like dating, like for real, like an adult. And so I started dating and, and would go, you know, would have relationships, nothing totally long term, but meet someone like them, have sex you know, want to get to know them better and, you know, develop a, a, a closeness that was sex and feelings and all of that. So that was new for me in my later 20s. And then, you know, and then I met someone and um, fell in love and uh, ended up having a my first, you know, real relationship in my, yeah, early 30s. I was definitely attracted to this person. Um, I definitely enjoyed sex with this person. And I was interested in pursuing a relationship with him. But looking back on it now, I realized like for the age that I was, it was still kind of a first early relationship and I had a lot to learn, um, and experience. So there were things that happened and, and that I experienced where I look back on it now and I go, Oh yeah. Like, Hmm. I wasn't necessarily as in love as maybe I thought I was at the time, if that makes sense. Or at least my understanding of how I define love now is different than it was then. Um, So it was exciting for me because it was new, but there was a part of the whole thing that was a little bit phony. I mean, I hate to say that, but on my side, I mean, as well as his, I think, you know, there was a performance part of it. Um, for both of us, I think. I mean, I I think it was good for both of us. And we're both now in um, relationships that have lasted way longer than ours and that are significant. Like, I think he'll probably be with his partner for a very long time, and I think I'll probably be with mine for a very long time. So I think we were really good for each other at that time, but part of that relationship was learning, like, kind of like what not to do, (laughs) if that makes sense. Um, One Lesson I learned was to not try to control a situation where there's another person involved. I think that I, at the time, felt like I could fix things. I realize now, like, that just, that's not how a relationship works. I learned about what kind of behavior I wouldn't put up with, you know, in future relationships, you know, like, uh, that I need to be in a relationship with someone who I want to treat with every bit of, you know, love and respect and kindness and support, and that that should be returned, and that that should feel equitable. And at the time, I think, and I hate to say it, but I think this was more like a a parent-child type scenario where I was the parent, and I just didn't, I didn't have the skills to recognize that that's what was going on, you know, because I was in it, and, It was evolving and, you know, I took care of this person and, you know, it was kind of one-sided. And it just, over time, that just didn't work. (laughs) (laughs) The most embarrassing um, situation in bed I think if you ask any gay man, they're going to have some sort of a gross-out story, whether it involves themselves or someone else. If anything, I think partly we, well, I feel this way, that there's this sort of understanding that gross stuff happens. I mean, I could totally give you a gross-out story for sure, um, but I kind of don't want to. Yeah. That being said, I th- don't necessarily think that I even consider that stuff that embarrassing. You know, I think it's part of gay culture and like fucking accept it, you know. Uh, you talking about poop, right? No, I'm actually talking about Schmegma. <laughs> and when I like got a mouthful of it, you know, and, you know, just didn't know how to deal. You know, I was with a guy who I was really into and. I don't know why he didn't tell me that there was a possibility he wasn't clean, you know, down there. And, you know, I just went down on him and um, it was unreal. Like I've described it to friends and they gag. So I'm going to spare the audience the gruesome details, but a mouth full of sand, sandy cheese, you know, and not knowing how to, um, you know, how to cope. See now I'm telling the story.
0: <laughs> but just for clarification, shmegma is is like somebody who's uncut. Yes.
1: Yeah, usually someone who's uncut and has like a cheesy kind of uh, um, substance around the head of their dick. You know, yeah. with with foreskin. Although I mean, you could you I mean schmegma That kind of cheesy, groinal penis balls. I mean, I think you know that it's all about the rubbing and the friction and in basically dead skin. You know uh, piling up. Lovely. I, I'm
0: uh, glad I asked you to clarify because I assumed you were talking about poop.
1: I feel like if you're gay and, and you don't have a poop story of so, to some degree, like, you haven't lived. But I also think if you're having sex with the right people, you know, people take the right precautions, that being said, accidents happen. And I don't know, I feel like there's forgiveness in that area, especially when you you know that it's like someone's mortified or whatever. Um, Yeah, as far as embarrassing stories, though, something that I think might be more fun, at least in terms of my um, sex life, is that when you live life as two different people in some ways, especially if you're a drag performer or an entertainer whose character um, exists for more than one show or more than one performance. And in my case, you know, in San Francisco, Peaches has been around since 1996 and very actively performing. There was this sort of sense of a Superman-type life where by day I was this. And sadly, even in San Francisco, a lot of gay men will not be able to hook up with drag queens. It's such a boner killer. And they can't see you as both. They could be attracted to me as Joshua, but the minute they know that I'm also Peaches Christ, it's, you know, a deal breaker. Um, And there's some sort of hard wiring. I think it's related to homophobia and self-hate and, you know, all the things that myself included, we all have, you know, cause we're raised to have it. Um, so I've always kind of accepted it and participated in it to some degree by hiding the fact that, you know, I mean, I used to de-drag my apartment, you know, for hookups and stuff. Um, so I'm complicit, that's part of it. So anyways, there was this guy and we hooked up more than once, very like sexy cub that I was into. It was one of those hookups where the sex was so amazing, but we barely ever talked. And it just was, that's the way it worked. And, you know, he'd come over and like, we'd be together for hours, but very little talking. And then he would leave. I was living alone at the time. One time he sort of saw a new poster I had put on my fridge. And as he was leaving, he was like, oh, you like Peaches Christ, you know? And in that moment, you know, I have to make a decision. Like, you know, how, how do I respond? So I just said, yeah, and you know, he, he looked at me and he was like, yeah, I think she's great or whatever. He was nice, thank God. He could have said, I think she's awful. Uh, but he said, I think she's great. And you know, my friend was blown by her. And I was like, really? He said, yeah, on the bus to Reno, like she blew him in the back of the bus. And so I said, no, no, that never happened. And he, he sort of looked at me confused, like, are you, you know, Calling my friend a liar, like why would you know he's very confused? And I'm like, no, that never happened. You know, she's the dead mother on the trip. She's the producer on the trip. She's sober. That's a debaucherous bus trip. She sits at the front, and that never happened. You know, some other drag queen blew your friend, and he got kind of indignant. You know, like, well, how do you know? You know, and he's standing on the other side of the door now. Like we're saying goodbye to each other. You know, and so I put on my you know best uh, Joan Crawford. You know peach's voice and was kind of like well i know that your friend was never blown by peaches christ because you were just blown by peaches christ you know and then like slammed the door you know locked it and kind of was like what am i doing you know so i don't know if it's fierce or embarrassing but it's definitely um one of my favorite stories and i will say this about him is he we didn't even have any real communicate like we didn't have each other's phone numbers or anything This is how long ago it was. We were communicating on Manhunt. And so he messaged me there to say, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm a big fan. And I'm really embarrassed, I didn't recognize you. And we ended up continuing to hook up. And it was actually very good for me. And so it it was a really lovely experience in many ways because it maybe taught me that I didn't have to like, always assume that it was a total boner killer. best move in bed. I mean, this is where I probably am going to be a little bit evasive just because I don't know how much I want to reveal about, you know, my uh, sexual performance necessarily. I mean, I would honestly say that as I've gotten older, I think that I'm really good at connecting with someone. And that sounds so cheesy, but I've met so many people that can't really like look you in the eye while they're having sex with you or or make a connection and i think that that's probably a move that i'm good at because i think when i'm having sex with like a partner who's a, a long-term relationship or you know a hookup that that would be something that would be important to me right it's like you want to get off with a person yeah. like that's the thing about sex now that i think is interesting well maybe it's always been this way because before grinder and hookup scruff or whatever like um you know we had bathhouses and tea rooms and everything but I do find that, you know, even in those sorts of moments of quick sex, you, you can perform it as if you are with another human being who the two of you are having a connected moment or like you're with a robot, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I don't really want to be with a robot. You know, like I could just, you know, stay at home. I mean, might as well be alone and jerk off, like, mm-hmm. you know. But I do find that there are plenty of guys out there who are more comfortable disconnected. Yeah. A lot of us miss the vitality of nightlife that the lore of cock, you know, built. And I will say that I do miss that. I miss that people would go to the stud and see a punk rock drag show, not just because they wanted their artistic gothic little heart fulfilled, but because there also could be hot trade, you know. Now I think You know, you've got this thing where people um, are choosing to go to a show because they wanna go to the show, but they're still gonna order their dick online. (laughs) You know, and it's like, I don't like what it's done to our sort of nightlife culture and um, just sort of the community in general. I I think it's had a negative impact. That being said, as a sober person who um, didn't necessarily wanna spend a lot of time in bars, I'd be a hypocrite if I said I hadn't used those apps. In fact, my partner and I met on one of those apps. So, I mean, I'm not gonna sit here and be like the old bitter queen who thinks they're all bad because I don't think they are. They're a new way to meet people. It's funny to realize how much of our culture was built around the lure of sex, you know? Um, but I like that. I think it's cool. I mean, I think it's sort of exciting. and there was something really neat about going out and like hanging out with your friends and seeing a show and going bar hopping, but also knowing that your pack was kind of on the prowl, you know, and that everyone was kind of, you know, and it created drama, you know, because your friend was cruising some guy that you ended up going home with. Like that was fun. You know, now it's like, it's like McDonald's or something, you know, but whatever. I mean, again, I, like I said, I don't want to downplay, um, the positive sides of those apps because I met the love of my life on one. I don't live with regrets necessarily, but certainly if like I were to, you know, have the opportunity to kind of tell my young self um, how to do it differently, I'd say like, have way, way, way more sex than you did, uh, to not be so afraid, to explore safely, to believe that condoms work, and to be way more experimental. But hey, whatever, I mean, you know, I really didn't, that didn't happen for me until my 30s or 40s, and um, you know, that's been fun. I would just encourage myself not to think that you needed to be a top or a bottom, that these were not real identities that, you know, sure, if you like one or the other, but like to really explore all that life has to offer and also to explore all the different kinds of men there are. You know, I think growing up the way I did, It wasn't until later that I sort of had this taste the rainbow, very, you know, very open-minded sort of concept of who sex partners could be, where they could be much older men, they could be any race, they could be trans men, they could be, you know, really any, like, just really like once you open your mind to having sex with anybody, you know, that is such a liberating, exciting new world to live in. And I think so many of us think, "Why well, of have a type. It's like, no, you're just raised in a racist culture and, you know, um, an ageist culture and, um, you know, an ableist culture and all these things, right? Like, I think that kind of accessing that freedom earlier would have been wonderful. You know, but again, you know, I had to, I got there when I got there. You know what I feel like, and I don't know if this is true or not, but that people of our generation, we did not pursue older men because they were dealing with survival. Yes. And we didn't really have access to them. Whereas now I've noticed as a 45 year old man, the amount of attention I get sexually from young men is bizarre almost. And I'm realizing they don't, they actually are looking at me in a totally different way than I was looking at older gay men, you know, which was, um, oh my God, are you okay? You know, and these guys are looking at older gay men and going like, teach me how to fuck, you know? So it's a really interesting change. And thank God, like, that's a great thing.
0: Joshua's interview was recorded in July of 2019 in San Francisco. You can see a short video featuring highlights from this interview on our YouTube channel. Visit fruitbowlpodcast.com for links to the video content past episodes, and all our social media links, as well as an email portal and a sign-up form for our email announcements. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. This week we received our first review of 2020. A new listener wrote that after listening to an episode, quote, it feels like you've made a new queer friend. Check out our podcast partners. Dennis Anyone with Dennis Hensley. Gayest Episode Ever with Drew and Glenn. Matt Baums, Sewers of Paris. And David and Alonso's Linoleum Knife podcast. Fruit Bowl is a production of Cubed Media, LLC, all rights reserved. Thanks for listening.